This is Germ Warfare, the battle of ideas. My name is Germ, this is Germ Warfare, the battle of ideas, Des or Desmond Latham. Thank you for joining me in the trenches. Well, thanks for having me, Germ. I just noticed you have some very nice looking guitars behind you. Yes, I'm a full-time musician. I've been playing since I was 17, I'm now 903, so that's a Telecaster and the one behind is a Strat. Um, the Telecaster? Yes, it's a 1962. I bought it, I sold a whole bunch of other things to buy this, including my amp, my Vox amp, all sorts of things. So it's a, it's a turn and it's a basically a, a limited edition. I played it for since 2005 in my band Red Hand, which is broke up in 2019, but doing blues and jazz. And this is it. It's a incredible guitar. I obviously have to then ask you what your background is. God, mixed. I mean, I, I I'm from KZN. I, you know, like everyone else, went to school and started playing music at an early age. And then I was, I did a lot of broadcasting. I worked at 702 as the senior reporter in the, as a war reporter, township reporter in the 80s and 90s. Studied at Stanford. I was lucky I got a bursary. Um, and in between that, I was playing music constantly, really, um, until 2019, which uh, I played with my two sons. One was a keyboard player former um Jacobsburg choir head of music uh, like singer so we were playing with Krista Koch who's a songwriter we were like a session band so I was playing with my kids and they're in the mid-20s now so it's kind of quite nice <laughs> to play slide guitar in the band and my one son is a really good bass player the other one's playing keyboard backing Chris with the drummer that I worked with for many years with the band Red Hand which is like a four-piece jazz band you know double bass sax guitar drums why is knowing our history important? Because then you know your future. Because history, I mean, everything that has happened um, will point you in the direction of what's going to happen. So uh, it's not an, uh, an acerbic or an a, a artificial process. Um, and also the big thing about that is that if you, if you cast aside what you think you want to believe happened, then you can, and, you, and you're really strict on being dispassionate. In other words, not too emotional then you will very clearly see what's likely to happen. And I think that's the most important thing for me is that everything that is, it doesn't mean that history necessarily repeats itself because humans are, you know, we're mammals and we're not very clever ones at that apparently. And uh, so we don't necessarily repeat, um, but Vico is a famous Italian philosopher, said that we, we are in cycles, ever ascending cycles. So we do return to what we've done before. And it just means that humans respond in a situation in a certain way. So I think that's the big thing for me is that um, if you strip away the present retelling of it, which is biased based on um, what people want to tell, uh, based on the winners of a war or something like that, and you really do want to understand fully what took place, you will pretty much get a clear picture about now and a very clear picture um, about tomorrow. And that's important because we, for me especially, because we need to be aware of um, our paths and you have decisions to make. So if you can see paths, uh, scenarios um, emerging, then it gives you an opportunity to kind of be part of something or start something or, um, you know, launch into a new place and not be caught out, I guess. That's the other big one. You said history is about people. Yeah. 
and it's about people that you don't necessarily think about. And that sounds trite. I mean, the, the, the French school of history, they went completely mad with this at periods, especially after the French Revolution. They started only writing history from the ground up, you know, the working class and the Marxist school and all these guys. That's what, the, you know, they, they write it eternally from like the eyes of the worker. And that in itself is warped because that's not the real story either. So um, you've got to be careful about applying just the general rule that, that becomes too flippant or too weak because you're just concentrating on some romantic story. Um, so, but it is really about, the whole thing means humans, the story of humans. And I don't particularly like humans very much, but I really do like the stories about humans a lot. <laughs> you, you start off going really far back, um, basically to the, the geographical formation of the region in which we find ourselves. Hmm. Why is that important? Good question. You know, I, I didn't, I grew up on a farm in KZN. I grew up speaking Zulu first, my first language. And I grew up with sh no shoes until six. And I, we didn't have TV. Mm. And I was born in 1962. So I, I grew up kind of like on the side of a frontier. Um, There's a place called Inkweleni near Mtlatuzi or some Mtlatuzi Valley. It's a river that goes into Richards Bay. And so I was always aware that the people next to me always called the reserve, you know, like the real heart of Zululand, the real Zulus were there. And I was always aware that there was, I was in the zone of environment and people. Then I studied it. I was lucky. I was fortunate. I also studied at Harvard uh, for a year um, at the School of Architecture. And I met someone called Professor John Stilger, who's got this incredible course about environment studies. And all he does for two, and two to three hours is just show you slides of the landscape and talks to you about the effect it's had on people. And uh, all sorts of lights went on for me after that. It was in 2000, 2001. I suddenly realized, my goodness, um, we all layered up upon this thing, um, upon this landscape, and we, we go blind to the landscape. And one of the famous things that he used to do in his course is make people see or show some, them something and then they would see what they thought and then he would tell them this, they would need to look elsewhere. So a good example was there's an ad in the 70s that had this woman's legs in um, stocking sticking out of a sand dune. And then he had a crab walking up to them. And he said, what is wrong with this ad? And of course, this is 2001. Everyone said, oh, it's so sexist. It's this woman's leg sticking out of the sand dune. And then he said, what else? And there's a long list of, and he said, what else is wrong? And, he said, and, and everyone stopped. And then um, he said, look at the crab. And, and if you looked at the crab and, and how it had walked, it had walked forwards. And crabs don't walk forwards. They walk sideways. <laughs> <laughs> so he was pointing out that we only see what we want to see. Mm. And that was the second thing from that. that so I guess from there, I, I got more and more interested in the intersection between how rivers and uh, seas and landscape works and how we work on it. Because we really are a passing layer on top of this thing. Um, and then, of course, if you look at South Africa with the extraordinary things that have happened in terms of geology, here, it's really unusual. The Friedefoot yes. Dome, for example. You know, the world, 75% of the world's chrome and, well, uh, platinum minerals are in an area here um, just north of Pretoria and if you take people and show it to them you can fly over it in a light plane in 20 minutes or less than that and the entire world's platinum basically is under your one wing and that's extraordinary I mean if you think about it because platinum is in every single aeroplane that we fly in let alone other products that you use and I use so when you look below the surface you start scratching around, you get the real story, mm. and that's the same with history. If you start scratching around, you kind of get this other thing that is not, if you're willing to take the bias away, 
you start feeling what is uh, real. And when you feel what is real, then you um, can make decisions, I think, about my life um, more clearly. And it doesn't help me get rich or anything, but it just, it's really, a, a, it, it's seeing things. It's like being, I don't know, someone opening a box and you can see something inside it so mm. clearly. You start the South African story pretty much with the Barberton um, belt. Mm. Um, mm. Okay, so let's start there. Why, why there? Well, it's one of some of the most ancient rocks in the world. Um, that you can find on the surface. You need to go to the bottom of the Grand Canyon to find other rocks that are old, because of course the rivers have chiseled their way down to you know, um, two, three hundred uh, million years ago and older. So that's close to more closer to one billion years old, for example, and that's really, really old in terms of rock. I mean, the Earth is three billion years old, but still the rock formations that came after the emergence of the Earth. And um, sorry, for it's those on who the don't know, that's yeah, it's in Mpumalanga. Yeah, it's in Mpumalanga escarpment. So if you're traveling towards Mozambique, you go down the escarpment and at the bottom of it is Barberton. And so if you go off the road into Barberton, you actually go into the hills there. It's a greenish colored rock and it's ancient. I mean, it goes, it predates all life. Um, so it's you know, just out of interest that that's the kind of thing that you find if you get off the road. I was fortunate enough to go on a geology tour some years ago and we stopped on the road to Langsburg, got out of the car on one of the secondary roads off the main highway and crawled into a hill and just hauled out a geological hammer and smacked the side of the shale and out popped a trilobite which is an ancient beast that looks like a little snail and that was uh, about 150 million years old and it's in the roads you know if you drive past the cape the crew is full of this stuff so again it's about stopping and looking um i try and these days take the road off the highway because that's when you see the locusts and you see the people staring at you, which mm. they don't normally do when you're on the highway. You're just a thing. And you, I think you become a person again when you get out and you, you walk around and you pick these things up. And there's this argument about land in our country, about who got you first. Who owns what? And I've been fortunate to be to have been talking to First Peoples in Cape Town, actually. I filmed them you know, a couple of months ago they're really radicalized at the moment because they in at outside Madiba's statue uh, um, in Victoria we've got the tents around Madiba's statue and they're making the point that the land originally belonged to them and they're not black you know that that's the important thing they don't regard themselves as Nguni or Tuana or Sutu which they're not they predate the Nguni and the Tuana and Sutu by thousands of years and of course because they regard it as um not effective and cohesive they were just kind of atomized and destroyed you know they were blown away by by both of the, they were not farmers they were um pastoralists and they were hunters the sano hunters and the koi pastoralists they hardly grew anything um and the zulu the twana and the sutu are farmers they arrived here 1800 years ago the nguni and the sutu and the twana and they started planting farms and they ran slap bang into the koi in the west of the country and they ran into the, the sand in the east in the southeast where the drakensberg is now i mean the, the the paintings you get on the walls all the stories about sand paintings bushmen but the sand is the correct phrase and um so that story to understand that story you've really got to go back and then uh, luckily i did anthropology at university and i did african history so 
you know, in the again, I hesitate to say from eighty three to eighty six and some time <laughs> back. <laughs> but uh I went on an archaeological archaeological dig near Craddock and we were scratching through this fireplace and it was a place called Waterfall, which is on a farmer's farm near Craddock and he allowed us in to do it. And we scratched down these layers and we saw the beautiful paintings. I mean, they're really incredible on the walls. They're really complex paintings. Um, and then the paintings have been painted over by less complex paintings. Someone had tried to repaint. And it was the uh, Amatosa who'd come in after the sand and tried to tell their story in paintings over the sand stories. And it was there you have the picture of what are we talking about here. But who's mm -hmm. first? What comes next? Who tells the story? So we drilled down in this fireplace and we thought we were going back to about 1300, 1200, AD, somewhere around there. And we went back to university, <coughs> a month of digging. And then Andrew Hall, who's a famous archaeologist, called us in, the three of us who went with him, and said, I've got something to tell you. Said, that's 2,300 years old, that, that stuff we're digging in. And we all obviously almost fill up our chairs because, um, you know, we didn't realize how ancient we were finding uh, ostrich eggshells, which was the pattern of, of um, there's a huge art pattern in ancient people of our territory here, which was told through eggshells because it was a bit like money. And women often were given these. And different size eggshells and different holes meant different things and so on. So, and okra is the other thing that you find in these places. And we're talking, you know, um, 70,000 years ago, 60,000, 50, that kind of thing. So when you look at that age period and you start thinking about who owns what, and then you look at the Nguni and the Sutu arriving in um, 2000 AD to 500 AD, and then moving down the east coast and, and the west, and then you get the Europeans arriving um, in 1650, technically, although they mm. um, had set up shop in Delegoa Bay earlier than that, the Portuguese in the 1400s. You start thinking about, well, you know, a lot of things came to mind. There's an arboreum in um, Boston where the, the botanists who run it, they don't like talking about um, indigenous, non-indigenous plants mm. because most of the trees in the East Coast of America now are not the original American forests. It looks like the American forests, but chestnut, horse chestnut is gone. It's extinct. Um, and they say that many of the trees there are from Middle East, Europe, and from Asia now have populated the east coast of America, all the forests you see that you drive through, and parts of, of Canada. And their point of view is that it's a forest that's taken the place of another forest. So um, using the same analogy, you can imagine that's how humans have moved around the world. That's how we've arrived here as slightly pale skinned, or the sand arrived here 170,000 or 200,000 years ago, you know, by far the most ancient people on the planet. Um, and the Koi later, about uh, 2000 a uh, bc and then the um the nguni and about 200 a.d and then the europeans and about the 1400s so you start getting this picture that if we stand back for a second and look at this then you start asking questions about law who owns what well there were farmers and um, the first farmers really arrived in um about uh, uh 1800 years ago not 10,000. 10,000 years ago was the first pastoralists they're not farmers you know, they had cattle, um, not that far, uh, not that long ago, but um, at least 3000 BC. And they came from the north. And there's a lot of speculation about exactly where. 
it's um, still the discussion, as you can imagine. We don't really know exactly where they came from. It looks like parts of the, the present-day Sahara, um, somewhere in the northern Chad area, somewhere around there, uh, or Sudan, and then moved southwards. Um, as they went, they were not, humans weren't really on the ground except for the sand, the ancient and the pre-sand. We don't know who those people were either. And, um, and then they arrived with their tools and their sentiment of growing things, the cassava and so on, um, pre-maize. Maize arrived with Europeans. So, um, so pup, for example, is not a African food. It actually comes from Aztec, middle of America, as we all know. And uh, it arrived with, uh, on the east coast first of Africa mm. through Arabs and European trade and possible, possibly Indian trade. It's incredible. You know what else is incredible, really, if you stand on that beach or anywhere down in the, in the Cape Coast and look out to sea? Um, about 2,000 years, about 2,000 BC, the sea went out about 80 kilometers. That was all landscape because of the Ice Age 7,000 years ago. The Ice Age meant oh. that um, the sea level dropped. And if you, for example, if you go to, to Jeffrey's Bay and you stand there and look out to sea, you would walk about 80 kilometers before you got to the sea, where it is now. So underneath the ocean is part of our history, our ancient history. It's there. It's, and, and as the sea levels rose with the ice age and the melting ice caps at the time, um, people moved back up into where we now exist. And, and so and those caves we're talking about were 170,000 years old, where 160, 150, where you find middens that are tens of meters high, middens of mussels, where people had, they lived mainly off the ocean. Mm. Um, there were all sorts of other animals they ate, but they lived off the ocean. They would eat seafood all the time, which is I quite like. And they would toss the shells into these middens. The middens eventually are they tens of meters, you know, sixty foot high. One of them, mm. which is just a basically a rubbish dump, ancient rubbish dump. The amazing thing about archaeology is that uh, there is a lot of debate about some of these things, but but other things there's not. So when a people become proficient in making a certain kind of pottery, they hand it on, they pass it on as like a cultural and an historic moment. So for in the future, people looking back at our time will see, for example, old computers of the store or other implements that we used. And, uh, you know, 2,000 years hence, we'll find the stuff in our rubbish and, and, and say, what are these things? Same thing with, with pottery. Like a Fender Strat. Yeah, pretty much. Well, hopefully <laughs> this lasts a little longer. <laughs> I'll have to see. See, my kids are musicians themselves. I'll, I'll see who gets it. But yes, exactly. The fender stat in, in, in the rubbish dump. And, um, and that's a technique. So there are various types of techniques that were deployed. And then as the people moved throughout Southern Africa, they would take the techniques with them and show people the new techniques. And uh, so that's one of the ways in which we link the movement of people around from Northeast Africa into Southern Africa and from West Africa, which is where the two chains of of um, DNA and also language groups come from for the Nguni, which is the Isizulu Isikosa and the Sututswana people, which are a separate group. They didn't come in the same direction as the Nguni. And that's another myth is that, you know, we're all the same because we've got a certain, you know, we're brown and we're black or what color of skin we are. We must all be the same, which is that kind of simplistic thinking really riles me because you kind of insult the ancestors when you do that. Because there's much more complex things going on here amongst humans. It's like saying the Palestinians and Jews are the same because you look the same. You know, it's it's uh, 
um, to, to people outside of the Middle East, that may be partly true, and to people outside of South Africa, it may be partly true, but it's the actual uh, reason why they got here is really important, and that's where the Chupampazi complex comes in with the pottery, with the people coming from the uh, Malarian area, that's where, and, and parts of Tanzania. And we're talking, you know, 1000 BC and so on. And that pottery arrives here a couple of hundred AD. So you can see using that, um, following the trail, so to speak, that that's how it's important. Because, I mean, one of the most important things to look at with that is the changing environment again. People have, have always said that, you know, the, the Europeans wiped out the wildlife, which they did, um, the settlers. Uh, but at the same time, they didn't make the grasslands of KZN. The farmers made that. Mm. You know, 500 years before Europeans landed on the shores, KZN, KwaZulu, looked very different to what it looked now. It was very much more forested, um, pretty similar to what you see, I suppose, not as thickly as Nisland, but there were forests. Yeah, I mean, and, it's funny. And then they planted. Sorry, go on. Planted, sorry, they planted, mm. planted little farms and they cleared the forests and then turned into the grassland with trees that we see in KZN now on the, on the coastal zone. Which was, that's not mm. natural. That was actually mutated by humans coming in more than a thousand years ago and working the land. Um, I've been to um, the Cedarburg, which is one of my most favorite places in the country to go. Uh, and I went and looked at some uh, some Bushman art there. And uh, it's supposedly 6,000 years old. Uh, I don't mm -hmm. know, but whatever. It's mm -hmm. it's it's mm -hmm. pretty interesting because... That's quite young for sand art. <laughs> yes. But, but, yes, what's fascinating is that the artwork shows what is very clearly um, very large animals probably elephants now I went and did a little bit of homework and it turned out that there were elephants in that region but there are absolutely no elephants there today so that would mean that they were wiped out by uh, humans or they just migrated or died out but what I'm trying to say is to your point is that it's amazing how the landscape changes yeah, I mean, I mean, the Sahara used to look like the Okavango Delta, 3,000, 4,000 BC. Mm. It was dryish, but it had great streams, and that's where all the sand comes from, by the way, is that it was the basis of giant lakes like the Okavango. And if you go to the art there, your ancient art there, you'll see the hippos and the, the rhinos and everything on the, on the walls inside the Sahara if you go into parts of Libya and Chad and Egypt. Mm. And so you'll see that. And if you look carefully at the Sahara and some of the... the, the um, worked landscape, the booths and places. You'll see the water where the water used to be. So the same thing here with what you're talking about, the Cedarberg. It was wetter in the period that you're describing. But the second thing is people did hunt elephants out of extinction and not just Europeans with firearms. I mean, like the it's perceived that um, humans wiped out mammoths uh, in the same way. Yes, it was the ice had changed and the eating habits changed and they died partly because of that. Maybe sickness, a pandemic. And also humans are presumed to kill them. So the same thing applies with what you're talking about, is that the elephants um, would then congregate as it dried in certain places. Humans find it easier to kill them. When they congregate just to water holes, they just wait for them and then put them into big pits, which is normally the technique that the ancient San and Koi used, is to dig pits, <laughs> chase the elephant into it. They'd fall and die like the mammoths. That's the ancient mammoth killing trick humans used to use. Chase them over a cliff or make them walk into a big hole and then just jab them with lots of spears and then they die then eat them and then uh, build their houses in the ice age out of their bones um, the same thing I think happened in the cedarberg that you're talking about so as the landscape changed the environment changed um, climate changes all the time 
the the human development thing you pointing at changed as well. I, I can't remember if you mentioned Bartholomew Dias, who yes. was yeah. actually earlier. Yes. No, I mentioned Bartholomew Dias a lot. And of course, 1488, he mm. rounded the coast and he was heading to look for the quickest route to the, they were tired of going overland, which kept getting robbed. So they're looking for this. They knew that by then that the world was circular and they knew that if they could get around this continent, they'd get to the riches of the east. And so, Dias um, rounded the Cape and, and uh, headed uh, all the way the first trip to where Mossel Bay is. I was just going back. to. Yeah, I was just going to say, so my wife and I lived in Mossel Bay um, a few years ago. And, of course, there's a lot of paraphernalia there about uh, uh, Bartholomew. And what, what was quite interesting, and correct me if I'm wrong, but he actually thought that was the Cape. Yes, because he went to this giant bay. And, mm. in fact, if you look at the maps that they drew, they drew it as the tip of Africa. It was slanted, bent. So Mossel Bay Bay was like the tip of Africa. And um, they had pretty, I mean, a fairly accurate way of telling where they were going, but they were coastal huggers back in that day. They didn't go across the giant oceans. They would hug the coast to go further and further south. they keep it in view. So um, they could only be as accurate. They didn't have timepieces then to do it, which they occurred later, and which made mariners more accurate, using watches, timing things in the mm. stars and the angles of the sun and moon. Then they'd figure out distance based on that very difficult process. But they didn't have that, so they were kind of, going on dropping knots out of the back of the ship which would then drag a certain speed they figured out how far they'd gone in a certain time and you know speed and distance equations and then the heads and they would produce this map and so when they turned they, they they went further out to sea to turn they didn't actually see the tip of, of south africa they went further out to turn so yeah they did they they thought that was it and they put so their obelisk in the ground there and said this is it you know we found that the the route and they had but that wasn't a very significant moment i mean uh, what 150 years later more or less was the more significant moment pretty much i mean um even even longer than that i mean it took it took three or four generations later before the dutch mm. took control um up to that point the um the portuguese basically ruled the seas along with the spanish and the dutch came along a little later the, with the VOC, Dutch East India Company. And, I mean, they were looking for a way in which to go to to India, ostensibly. That's why Goa in India is Portuguese influence now, because they were looking there. Also, they were more interested in East Africa. They weren't really interested in South Africa. So they, they wanted to just pick up some water. Then they made the fatal mistake of not asking the Khoi kings, as they call them, or captains. And the Khoi regarded water as like gold. And you didn't just somewhere rock up and put your barrels in any sort, any stream, and that was like a deeply felt um, uh, confrontation to do that. Mm. And and of course the Portuguese didn't see it like that. The water's flowing out of the mountain. They just took the little boats uh, from the ships and uh, took it to shore and said, "Okay, we're going to just grab ourselves some water." And they were attacked on the beach. And one of the most amazing things about this is that. Um, one of the navigators, whose name escapes me now, I'll come back in a second, but he was famous in the late, late 1400s for being a virile Portuguese soldier-sailor who was taking over the world. He was taken out by the Khoi in, in the Cape in one of the episodes I talk about this, where he arrived with about 50 men from his ship, and he tried to bulldoze, he was trying to pick up slaves, actually, 
and you try to bulldoze the local Iniqua um, at the Cape, and they, the Koi in those days had an incredible ability to talk to their cows. And what they would do is, and they had, the cows were large and had large horns, much larger than we think these days. They're a bit like gooning cows. So, a uh, cattle. And what they would, did is line them up, they would line them up in front of them, and then whistle a certain way, and these cows would attack. And of course, the Portuguese had never seen this before. It's like being hit by tanks. So there were 50 of them, all 50 died, including this world famous at the time, maritime hero. And so when the Portuguese survived, went back, they said, do not by any means go to the Cape and pick up slaves. And B, do not mess around with those acts. They will kill you. So the word got out to the English who were slaving at that time and started to do it along the coasts. It was early days. Be careful of that place. So one of the ironies that we live with, and it's also very far from the Indies, the West Indies, so many of the people that they're trying to capture would die before getting to this, you know, later the sugar fields and so on of the West Indies. It's too far to take slaves, so to speak. But uh, there was the act of the Khoi that turned Southern Africa into a no-go zone for slavers, which it, it was. It was never affected directly by slavery. It was affected by slaves from Malaysia who ended up in the Cape. That's another story. But in terms of the the slaving system that was built by the Spanish um, and, uh, you know, uh, in West Africa and so on. We in Southern Africa escaped it because basically because the Koi, what happened that day on the beach when the Koi overran um, the Portuguese, they never went back to do it again. How important are the Koi to South African history? Oh, you know, they've, I can't tell you. I mean, it's how we've forgotten about it is because they became co-opted by the Trek Boers later and, of course, in history, um, intermarriage with all kinds of people and eventually um, called themselves either Griqua or Khoi um, or, or, or Colored, or Black, or White, some. So they've kind of been subsumed by change, which happens in the people's lives. But if you look at their, at their ancient way of life and also the, their genetic um, power that they've imbued us as human beings, I don't want to go down this line too far because it sounds weird, but it's it's true. I mean, the the koi and the san, just so that you know, I mean, this is not a disputed fact, spoke the most complex languages ever spoken. They still do. They work the human mouth uh, and muscles of your tongue and your throat more than any other language. So it's well known amongst linguists that koi and san is the first languages of the world because they, you know, with with coffee come from from Ethiopia it, Ethiopia has the most strains strands of DNA of coffee it's the most types of coffee in the world because that's where it's from potatoes the Andes the most strains of potatoes are from the Andes because that's the home of potatoes so the further away you go genetically from the source the less variation you get same with the koi the less the further away you go from their language and the sand the less variation you get so um, it, they worked our human faces the most. So as people traveled away from, uh, you know, we're talking about, I don't know how many tens of thousands of years ago that we changed and didn't, we didn't have to speak such complex way mm. with clicks and so on. You know, we became, we, we spoke a language that became firmed in vowels and whatnot. So that's, I mean, one of the things to give you an example. And the other is the San and the Koi have the most diverse gene structure of humans in the world. They're the most variation. And again, variation is strength. Um, you know, if you overbreed a dog, it turns into a slobbering idiot, basically. And the same thing applies to humans. If you breed us into one little group of 
people like the royals with a cleft palate, you end up with um, problems. <laughs> you know, it's well known. What I'm talking about here is well known amongst. So, so I mean, uh, that's for a start. Is the sand and the koi are the home of us as human beings, and so we must respect our forefathers and mothers. That's the way I look at it. And we must also know these stories. When you build a picture of reality on the landscape and a geology and a fact, you don't need anyone to tell you some stuff. And it sounds right. arrogant, but I, I mean, I'm 60 years old. I'm not, I haven't been doing this for five minutes. Mm. My whole life has been spent doing this. And precisely for the point that you're making is that um, to use flippant and trite, um, loaded, contemporary revisionist kind of sentiment to describe something that's really complex means that you and I and anyone else doing this is making a major mistake because mm -hmm. we're not seeing straight. It's like, it's like taking one of our eyes out and thinking we can see in 3D. You know, it's, it's a mistake to make. So yes, uh, I don't care for that. Um, and I, by the way, spent time in government recently. I was hired as the chief director of the Government Communication Information System, GCIS, as the chief director uh, of communications, which is mm -hmm. a very high level. It's two below the minister. So you can still do what you're doing as long as you do it for the right reasons, Jeremy. You know what I mean? Mm. But Des, can we call ourselves African? I I'm guessing we can. Well, the thing I'm trying to point out here is that whether we like it or not, even Adolf Hitler was African because we are all from him. Uh. 70,000 years ago, we all walked. <laughs> Our ancestors, yeah, no, no, go and, go and fiddle with that one if, if you're you know, living in Midwest USA and you think you're pure white. Well, I've got news for you, my friend. We all came from this continent. We know, that's, again, not something I'm thumbsucking. You and I know if you go check the facts. So the point being that how far do you want to go back before you're not who you are, you see? So for me, that's why we're talking about this. Because mm. if we say that the, the Nguni and the Sutu are, because they traveled overland here from West Africa and East Africa, and the Boers are not, and the English are not, because they only got here by ship, you must start looking at the coin in the sand then. And so, but they're a different skin color to the Nguni and the, and the Sutu. They're called yellow skin for a reason. That's how they were described by the Khoza and the Zulu and themselves. And they saw themselves different from the Mlungus that rocked up, the white people. So the ancient people who lived in this land knew what I'm saying to you. That's how they would talk. Um, but they wouldn't separate themselves in the same way that we did, and we still do in a strange way. So... So, yes, it's very unpolitically correct because it takes quite a lot of thinking to get to this discussion. Mm, yeah, <laughs> you know what yeah, I mean? Sure. It's yeah. very easy to open the paper and to say to yourself, oh, look at your website and say, I look like that person. That must be the history. Or they all did this. Yeah. Or they all look like that. Therefore, I mean, they must all think like that. They're all dolphins, aren't they? You know, they're all giraffes. They all look this color. So they all do that at precisely the same time in spring in the middle of the month. This is what they do because they have mm. that color. <laughs> it sounds yeah. like what you're saying is that people people make an error when they think that history started with Jan van Riebeck here in South Africa. I tell you, and don't forget, Jan van Riebeck hated Africa. Hated Africa. In, in, in what way? He, from the start of the time here, he only spent 10 years in the Cape. And then he was out. He went to the east. He went back to Batavia where the power was. Batavian Republic, which is um, Java. Um, he constantly, his diary is, he castigates everything. So this thing about this romantic um, man strolling about the beach in Cape Town and building his head, it's a complete myth. Jan van Riebeck, I promise you, hated Africa. 
and he couldn't wait to leave and left the first chance he get, which he did, and never came back. So there's the there's the myth of of Jan van Riebeek. Um, but what he did is that he fought the idea of colonialism, colonialism at first, because the Dutch wanted just a way station. 1652, they didn't want to put boots on the ground. They wanted to just put a couple of people on the ground, and keep the koi away, and then buy cattle from the koi and then give it to their ships going past so they could survive scurvy and get to the wonders of the eastern spice trade and survive. That's what they were there for. They had no interest in becoming part of Africa whatsoever. In fact, they built a giant blooming hedge, which you can still see in Kirstenbosch Gardens. He planted a hedge and said, this is us and that's you. We are the Europeans and you are not. And when the first chance came, he was on the, on the boat and out in late um, in 1670 or so, 1667, I can't remember exactly, but he scarped 1675, somewhere around there. He got out of the country, or not the country, got out of the, the Cape, which was just a little peninsula at that time. Yeah, so all these a, people running around country. saying, you know, it's our ancestor, they, they just have no idea what they're talking about. Our ancestors in the European side were the trick boys mm. and the settlers. And the Koi and San intermixing with them, by the way. That's the ancestors of you and me sitting here. Van Riebeek didn't, as far as we know, intermarry with the Koi, but most of the trick boys did. Simon because there were no did. European women around. I think Simon van der Stel did. Yes, Simon van der Stel is famous for it. Mm. And, and, um, and had a very loving relationship, apparently. Uh, and many others. I mean, we could sit here and bore each other with kind of details. Mm. But when you're a man alone in the felt and, and uh, you need succor and, and survival and, and to have offspring to run your farm later, you don't actually care. And they didn't. The first Dutch in the Cape, and the Germans, by the way, very big as well. We mustn't forget the Germans worked as mercenaries for the Dutch in the 1650s. And the Swedes, Scandinavians, large number of Scandinavians and Germans worked with the Dutch um, as mercenaries and ended up, some of them ran away, some of them went to go live with the Khoi. All of them, about, you know, at least three quarters, 75% intermarried with the Khoi women and had children, which is the heart of the debate now about what people say is colored and what is not and what is black and what is this and what is that. So, and, and of course, during the latter period of colonialism, the English speakers and the Dutch stroke Afrikaners didn't want to hear that story anymore it was a not a very good story to hear for them they wanted purity in the felt the Dutch were preaching to themselves that they were Calvinist and saving and and you know God's chosen people and therefore they had to separate themselves mentally the English never managed to properly um, merge with themselves with anyone when they colonized anything ask the Indians mm -hmm. so um, so there's been this this layer of deceit, if you like, about especially um, South Africans who think they're white, when mm. most of them are not. Most of us are not white. We are so-called, if, if we were to go back to apartheid era, 1948 with the arrival of the National Party, that's when a lot of this narrative we're talking about completely flipped. Kunrad de Base, probably one of the most famous frontiersmen, He's, he makes Davy Crockett look like a rank beginner. And yet we don't know about this guy. Why? Because he married Nika, the Kosa Rarabi king's mother. He was like this voluptuous, huge, beautiful woman, and, she, and he was six foot seven, he was almost seven foot tall, Kunrad de Base, trick poor, and he married her. He, had, he, he did not like 
European woman, so-called. Mm. He did not like the Dutch or the Boers, but he was a Boer himself. He was um, of Dutch extraction. And it's a long story about him, but he came around in the seven, late 1700s. And his story by itself is amazing. He should be in every school book because he was just such an incredible character. Mm. He's a frontiersman. Um, and he ended up living in the early 18, um, 1900s, I mean, um, 19th century, he ended up living near uh, the Baterberg in Limpopo with his clan, who were all mixed people, Koi and Koza, and his children. He had dozens of children. He had quite a few wives. And eventually he had a big fight with the British and the Koza and the Boers. And he buggered off on his, with his ox wagon in like the eight, early part of the 19th century to go and create a whole kind of clan of the bases, um, which are still there, by the way. They mm. still live in the Waterberg. So how do you tell that story um, in an apartheid South Africa, which is the, our story, which is the true story? It's kind of, it makes people, when they hear it, feel very uncomfortable, especially my generation, you know, who is born in the 60s, or probably even earlier generations. And um, it's a delightful story. This guy was a complete, he was incorrigible. He fought the British. He fought the Amatoza. He fought the Khoi. He fought everyone, basically. You've got to look at a few things. For example, the British were buying. And you got to, when I use the phrase trek boer, that's a very technical phrase. Mm. It's not a curse. <laughs> that's what people call themselves and were proud and still are. So that's how I refer. When people call themselves Khoi, there's a group of people called the Bastards, Bastards. Who, who fought the, the British and the Trek Boers, they were like a gang in the late 1700s. Stuurman, Busak was the other one, famous name. Um, Trompeter, these guys were like, ran, ran the, the frontier, and they, were, they scared the living daylights out of Amatosa, out of the British and the Boers. And they were like mixed race, mixed slaves, they were ex-American um, uh, maritime sailors. They were, they were like a gang of thugs. And they were doing that. So, so you've got to look at the story and say, okay, hold on a second. What was going on at the period? So, for example, when the British came in, in 1795, they defeated the Dutch in the Cape and they took over. They did exactly the same with the VOC had been doing. They were buying cattle from the Trek Boers and giving it to their ships. They didn't have the guts to put their own soldiers into harm's way. So they made the Trek Boers the front line. So I write Kabecha or Port Elizabeth now, or, the, or what is called the Swatkops River then, Algoa. They land in Goa, put up this fortress. They start, they, they, they start telling the Trek Boers how they should deal with Amakosa, uh, which is what the VOC had said. Don't trade with them, don't barter. And, and then they bugged off back to Cape Town. Meanwhile, the Trek Boers are the first line of the frontier, if you like. So what are they going to do with Amakosa? They're going to barter with Amakosa. Are they idiots? No, they're going to barter with them. But the British used the Trek Boers as like a defensive zone. They didn't have the authority, and they were actually, when they first fought the first war with Amatkoza, Amatkoza chopped them up to such an extent that the British never wanted to fight Amatkoza again. And that's 1790s. We still have another 100 years of wars between the British and the Koza to go. <laughs> and they, so you can see that there was a lie from the start about the, how the British did that, the English, if you like. So let's start from there and tell that story and how the Amatkoza at the same time were fighting themselves in Tlambe was this famous um, late 1700s leader. He was a, like a militarist. And then there was Nika, who was like this kid. who was supposed to be king, but was too young when, when Columbia's um, brother died. Mm. 
And so he ran the kingdom on behalf of Ngika until he was old enough. And the problem for Nslambi and Ngika is that when, when Ngika got old enough, Nslambi didn't want to give power to Ngika. So Ngika had to defeat him, which he did. So there was a whole, and that's the first time it had happened to the Amatkoza people, that they would be disrupted like this. As that happened, the Trek Boers and the British rock up. So, so you have the situation where the Kosa are starting to fracture themselves. They're fighting. And the frontier starts becoming a frontier. You can tell what's going to happen next. So how do you tell that story instead of Black Bear's fight? It wasn't Black Bear's fight. Mm. Kungwa of the, of the Kunu Kwebe was doing deals with the, with the Boers to defeat Mintlambe. Um, um, he was like doing deals with the Boers to fight. So it was like Kosa and Trekpo were fighting Kosa. Mm. Etc. Cetera, Etc. Cetera. So I don't want to bore you with all the details, but it's that kind of story. So if you tell a story like that, you very quickly move away from all the Boers are bad and all the British are bad and all the Kosa are savages. They weren't. Um, the French travelers into uh, the Eastern Cape, especially the Amatola area, which is just stunningly beautiful part of the world, were smitten by you know the noble savage they called Amatola, mm. living this perfect life. The hill, the, the houses on the hills. When um, the uh, Grosvenor was sunk, the British in the 1780s, the British sent, a, uh, I mean, the Dutch sent, uh, it was a British ship, but the Dutch sent a force to look for them. They found these women who had been shipwrecked earlier as children, living as Tkosa, whites, and Europeans. And these women who could only speak Tkosa, and they didn't want to go anywhere with these people who popped up who looked maybe like them. They'd been incorporated into Tkosa society. So back in the day, that was normal. It became abnormal. And that's why we're talking as we are now, historically. Because over time, that kind of sentiment of surviving on the landscape, to go back to our first comments, surviving on the landscape, because the lion's going to kill me. I, don't, I should work with the Kosa guy here, because the elephant's going to trample me. Or the sand, although they didn't work with anyone. Um, they were the, uh, South Africa's real... Um, Everyone thought the sand were enemy because they mm. were just so um, incredibly part of the landscape that uh, the Koi were terrified of them. The Kosa called them monkeys. The British tried to, and the, the Boer and the British tried to exterminate them. So um, the, the sand really of everyone we've spoken about are the ones who are the most cursed in our landscape, if we want to use that heavy loaded phrase. And the ones who most belonged here at the same time because they were the most ancient people on our landscape. So... No, you're right. That this trite way of people looking at it now, that's the problem. We look at it through the prism of the present. And then we, we simplify it. Because most humans do not, we don't have the time to be complex. And we don't have the patience. We're trying to fix something now. So you find the school books, you know, all whites are bad because they came to South Africa and they just ripped colonial. Mm. They were colonials. And then all blacks were good because they were, they were like in the Garden of Eden. And Purple savage. These, yeah, and these people rocked up and just took everything away from them. Dysentery killed Amakosa in the 1700s. It was not yeah. a happy place health-wise. And they killed the Trekpur too, by the way. And the Trekpur's houses in the 1780s and the Amakosa houses were exactly the same. Mm. People don't know that. They think, oh, the Trekpur's are like this. They have this little European, like Swiss mansion in Krafreinet uh, in 1780. No. They lived in the same houses as the Khoi and the Amakosa. So that's the other thing. There was very little differentiation. You know, Kunra de Base, this guy I keep mentioning, was, was moving between so-called white mm. and black society completely, easily. He spoke three or four languages. He married the Amakosa king's mother. 
he could rock up and argue in Dutch with uh, Landros back tomorrow and head off back to his coy wives. You know, we're talking about a time that's hard for us to fathom because we be, our minds have been warped and poisoned. Yeah. So no, not of, of course not. People kind of were trying to make a living like we are now. So they were doing, making deals. Sometimes Koi were fighting Koi. Sometimes Koi were fighting Koza. Sometimes Koi and Koza were fighting British. Sometimes British and Koi were fighting Koza. Sometimes British, Koi and Koza were fighting Koza. Sometimes the Boers and the Koza were fighting with Koi. You get the picture. This is the picture. The one thing that we haven't said is that we fight. We are fighters. And that's our problem is that every time there's a political problem, even contemporary We fight. We fight. You know, we shoot each other and we jump on each other and we look at KZN politics at the moment. Mm. You know, everyone's being popped off there. So that's unfortunate reality about it too, which I uh, do want to mention to you, Jeremy, is that we are hard people, much harder than we think. I think the picture that I've been trying to paint um, in this conversation is that our history is remarkably nuanced. <laughs> yeah. It's not, yeah. excuse the pun, black and white. No, no, no. That's that's why I'm saying to you that that's the exciting thing for me when I look at it. Mm. And the thing that I'm I'm doing this podcast for me, and I'm mm. very pleased that you've found it and, and people that I appreciate it found it and said, okay, I see what you're doing. I've got all kinds of people listening to this thing, as you can imagine, mainly because of what you're saying here. Because you, yes, I could do the the like theoretical take and say you know the european colonialism arrived and disturbed the natural equilibrium of southern africa but that's a lie because the um africans had been disturbing their own equilibrium in southern africa long before the first european ship docked here i mean shock zulu shock is just is an obvious example yes he was he was very aggressive but shock i mean shaka was also part of a group of people that formed out of the south um eastern south africa uh, at the time, he wasn't mm. alone. The Mtetwan and Dwandwe, mm. Senzanga Corner, and these guys predate him, and they were as violent as him. It's just that for specific reasons at that moment, he perfected a number of things. By the way, the, the horn and the attacking formation wasn't his idea. Uh, the Ikwa spear that he used wasn't his idea. It's a whole lot of mystery and myth has been mm. generated around him personally. Um, I grew up in where the Kwabe are in KZN, which is the first Zulu group, which is, I grew up in the Inkweleni River area. I grew up in a place called Inkweleni. That's where Nandi walked. Nandi is Shaka's mother. We used to go and swim in the pool where she was famous for swimming. I grew up steeped in that stuff. What you learned very, very quickly is, um, as a young white Zulu, I guess, whatever you want to call me, but if someone who understood what was going on around them, is that the the clan-based things around you was far more complex than just Zulu. Later, um, and what I'm saying here is that that's how people relate to themselves there now, but but they use the general clause of Zulu. The Kwabe were tiny. Then Dwandwe and the Mtet were a much bigger group of clans of pre-Zulu. It's just that the, the Zulu emerged from the Kwabe and then through um, force made everyone become Zulu, I guess. But the strains we're talking about here, like the Kwabe with the Rarabi, people and then Tlambe's people and Nika, they still exist today, the strains of folks who regard themselves as those their ancestors. They don't just call themselves, I'm a causer. Like you don't call yourself just Jeremy Nell. You have ancestors who the Nells did this and the Nells did that. Very similar. So yes, the Zulu emerged as a warlike people and because they took out the British at Santa Luana in particular 
um, they were then put on a pedestal by the colonials because when you've been beaten by a group of people um, and you're perceived to be the empire state of the, of the world, you've got to create some kind of conversation as well around why they were so good. But they, but they were and they destabilized Southern Africa, the Mpitkani, which it's called, which is the Zulu um, and other movements and the, the emergence of colonials all went into this pot, fought like living daylights with each other, including the Basutu and the Kiswati and the Venda. And out of this thing caused people like the Shlubi and other and others to run around the country bumping into each other um, uh, and caused what's called the Dipatkani or Impatkani, which is that many parts of South Africa were disturbed around the early part of the 1800s through to about 1830-40. And the Zulu were blamed for this. So that's a long answer, but they they were as warlike as hell, but so were the Ndwandu and the Mtetwa who predate the Zulu in the late 1700s. They came out of a resource-based um, concentration of power, and the Zulu perfected it to some extent. So that's, that needs to be told, that kind of thing, and people need to know that. Why? Because today the so-called Zulu are fighting in, in KZN, but it's not mm. a simple fight. It's clans fighting. Yeah, it's tribal. KZN. I wouldn't quite go there. I'd say it's clan. But in other words, it's like the Nels. The Nels fighting the Besaidens is, is not tribal. It's right. It's more like a clan. Or like the Scots. Scots clan. You must think of it like that. So the okay. Macintosh fighting the Hamiltons. That's more like it. Tribal implies a lot of uh, you know negative overtones. So okay. forgive, me, forgive me for being pedantic. <laughs> but if you think of it as clans, it gets much easier to kind right. of figure out. Mm. You you said at the beginning of the conversation that uh, knowing our history can also then help us understand our future. How do you see things playing out? Okay, so there's a number of layers. The first, politically speaking, is that the ruling party obviously is, is up a creek. Um, the corruption level and destruction of services that's going on, that combination of corruption and service disruption, and the level of criminality is wiping out this ruling party. But it's got a post-colonial thing in its its head like a feather saying okay we are the heroes of the hour we've created this place we're rainbow nation so what has happened with rumble pause he's unable to deal with internal reactions inside his own party the zuma echelon have um disrupted the process of politics to such an extent they've warped it through money that he's unable to cope with it he hasn't been able to do it in four years and he's not going to be able to do it in the next four so what's going to happen is inside the ruling party, the elements that are, are biding their time, they're very patient. They wait for him to, he's going to only run twice as president because of the constitution. And then um, who will replace him, you see? So in their minds, that's what's happening. At the same time, he's unable to deal with them in the short term. So roads are breaking, health is breaking, education is breaking because the money has been stolen. So the, in the short to medium term, it's, the prognosis is pretty bad. The ANC is not going to fix itself. And they are the biggest party. So they're losing power rapidly now. You can see this. It happened to the Indian Congress Party about the same period after um, the Indian Congress Party, Gandhi's party, had taken over in India as a post-colonial, etc., etc., etc. We can bore ourselves to tears talking about the equivalents across Africa or the world, if you like. So that's what's happening. So the, and, the, and, and the Ramaphosa and his ilk have no intention of destroying their own party, which gave us Nelson Mandela and freedom by doing something about what we're talking about here. So in the short term and medium term, we're talking about the next 10 years, eight years, it's going to be swift. ANC is going to um, collapse to some extent. There's going to be an increase in dislocation in our country. There's going to be a fracture based along not race lines necessarily, but it's going to break down um, regionally. 
there's going to be a lot of tension over resources which is a very ancient fight and a lot of the middle class is going to leave which they did in Zimbabwe, Venezuela, Colombia, Serbia they're doing it now in Ukraine you know if, if they don't if the things are too unstable in eastern Ukraine they call um, they call themselves Somalis and they're trying to get out of there to go to Kiev from um, Lubansk and and uh, the far eastern regions it's become a destructive zone so you can see that that's the first thing. Mm-hmm. so destabilized political system and a fracture no race war because that's not how we operate here um, we we violent lots so we'll end up shooting each other between races between, amongst races before between <laughs> yes the cape may become its own little entrepot because of the Karoo so and, it's a big uh, giant desert and hopefully KZN too KZN is going to fracture more significantly because of this ancient very ancient clan based conflict that mm-hmm. goes on there so it's not black on black because Serbians killed Croats and I know Serbians and Croats I met them in America they hate each other more viscerally than Israelis hate Palestinians and they're white so and Rwandans Tutsis the mm. Tutsis and the Hutus you know humans that's what I said to you if people come with this thing that you know tribal this can people are going to kill each other blacks will kill blacks blah blah blah, blah. so how they do it that kind of that trope is just nuts mm. humans do it so and, um, and, and we can you can record the conversation come back in five years time and tell me I was a liar but you can mm. see that the political party is going to become more unstable and collapse virtually yeah, and sure. then people inside it who have the arms and can control the security forces will try and do something very old trick Ask the Germans, you know, that's what happened in the 20s and 30s, 1920s and 30s in Germany. Then um, our economy has been shriveled because labor costs are very, very high. So the future in terms of manufacturing is not very good. Um, The country may, remember our union in 1910 was an artificial one. They pasted together the republics of the free states, Transvaal, Natal, sort of, which was just emerging as a British place, and the Cape. There were four of them. And they said, okay, we just had this big war called the Boer War. So we don't want the whites to fight amongst the whites. Anyway, there are far more blacks than whites, so we need to kind of like stop fighting and, and reach an agreement. And so we won't talk about the Boer War much. And we will then sign this agreement. Three years later, they signed another agreement called the Land Act, which gave most of the good land to the whites. And off they went. So what is stopping that from unraveling? I ask you, not much. You know, it's just a, it's like any state that's been cobbled together. Because you grew up in it as a stable state, it doesn't mean it's always going to be stable. You've got to look at the historical crack zones. Mm-hmm. So the, the possibility of what may happen in KZN and, and, and change the country's fundamentals, I don't know obviously exactly what, but you can start seeing the signs of there. We're in an unstable environment, it's getting worse, our infrastructure is collapsing, the ruling party can't deal with it. Criminals are running parts. The syndicates are exporting mm. copper cables by the like hundred yards. You could pay ten dollars for five meters. What are you going to do if you're poor, etc., etc.? Et you can take that argument everywhere. You know, you can shout at each other from the comfort of your social media account, but once you face each other and the discomfort of each other's faces, you tend to kind of get real. You know, a lot of people in their platform communication and also their bourgeois middle class, a lot of them. Uh, would happily pontificate about many many things but once you get on the ground where you've been going and you know you drink the coffee in the cup and say hello and thank you we turn into human beings again in the same way that the uh, that the story of the first koi and the dutch getting along or not 
um, and our country of, of complexities is. It's about that. So that's what happens to us. You know, we don't we don't want to bash heads all the time. So I'd agree with you. The thing that's only concerned me is that there's been more of a separation of races recently because of the narrative around the fact that only one race is good and the other one's bad. And you remember, I grew up with that narrative in reverse. You know, I grew up in the 60s and 70s at school um, where whites were supposedly the saviors of the African race because they were so brilliant and Africans were savages and they were going to be saved. And it was reversed. Now it's reversed again. Whites are savages because they tore the heart out of beautiful, beating, angelic Africans. And, and the Africans were just waiting there like little baby birds and destroyed. So yeah. uh, that narrative is foisted on us by people who have a lot to gain on the other side. But when we meet and we go out and have babies and you know, go traveling the world, we don't think like that necessarily. The point mm -hmm. I'm making is that if we pushed against the wall, we're not the Zimbabweans. South Africans fight. And South Africans are still armed. White South Africans. They still have their guns. And the ANC knows that. Mm. So one of the things that will not allow us to end up in a Zimbabwe situation is that the tens of thousands of previously and recently trained people from the military walking around. Mm. So on the one side is we don't want that. And the ruling echelons know that. They're trying to constantly deal with that situation. So they would then create this perception that you are bad because your name is Mr. Nell and you are apparently white. Well, mm. you don't look very white to me. I must tell I've I, I look more like a Pakistani. Yes. You, you need to have a DNA test, which is what I did at the Wits <laughs> Origin Center and discovered that I'm actually mostly Iraqi with a little smattering of Algerian. That's incredible. So, so And I, yet I'm red hair. I've got red hair and green eyes. So And one of my good friends, whose name I won't mention here, who's a hardcore Africanist, like used to say whites need to belong in the sea, um, discovered in his DNA test that he's part... Italian <laughs> not just Italian but he knows exactly which part of Italy he's from and now he goes on holiday there and he feels at home and and he's a black South African so nothing works better than a good old DNA test um, Jeremy so uh, I'm just saying to you I'm, you know we, we're talking about that's the point we're talking about here is that underneath this thing mm. is the heart and the brain I mean I always tell I train people on this um, in my other life I'm a digit, so-called digital expert, believe it or not, um, because I learned to code at Stanford in 1994 to do Linux and, and uh, blah, blah, blah. So I ran a mobile phone company for 10 years doing applications, for example. And the thing I always tell them is, as journalists especially, you've got to follow more people you hate than you like. Because the old story in our business, you've got to hold the head of the snake where you can see it. But people in social media don't do that. Mm. They, they follow people who agree with them. And so we're becoming dumber, clearly, but not to say we weren't already dumb. I'm just pointing out that you're right, that the echoes that we hear about what we think is true um, about each other is reinforced because we're in these little swirling groups that, that of nodding sheep. And you and I can disagree about many things and do it honorably. You don't have to be dishonorable. Everything I transcend social media, I will say to your face or anyone's face. Um, my name is my Gmail account. Desmond Latham at Gmail. You know, I mean, how old school is that? You know? So, because of what we're saying here is that you, um, I always think that people who are conspiracy theorists or have a, a giant axe to grind, especially about race, have a big psychological problem with their own life. They are weak. They are unable to control their life. 
some outside force must be acting on them like zombies. So therefore they look for a reason why they live like they live or they think like they think. You know what I mean? So therefore it's someone else's fault. So vicariously, um, they externalize that on them and they blame someone for what they are. And then the easiest thing to blame is someone who doesn't look like you. <laughs> you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. And then of course because of our history, recent history and apartheid and so on, it's very easy then to like point a finger and say, Yes, let's all agree on this social media account and scream at each other or against each other. But it's actually not progressing anything, really, other than making me feel better. And then, like drugs, the next day you feel worse. What does it mean to be South African? Well, um, well, I lived in America twice, and I asked myself that a lot. I lived in Boston for a year, and I lived in San Francisco, Palo Alto for a year. And looking at it from outside the country, so first of all, because I grew up where I grew up, I feel, I feel really part of the landscape. So when I'll give you two examples and, and why I'm, and I think explaining why I think I'm South African or African. I'm African, people ask me, I say I'm African and they laugh and I say, let me tell you, and I speak to them in Zulu and then they stop. Um, but these are this, so I was waiting to vote for the first time in my life in 1994, San Francisco City Hall, first democratic elections. My daughter had just been born in Palo Alto. Standing there, the woman behind me starts talking uh, in Zulu. Not in Zulu, but in a particular kind of Zulu. So I turn and I start talking to her in Zulu. It turns out, now she, this is San Francisco, April 94, that she grew up in a place called Empangeni, which is literally about 45 kilometers where I grew up in a place called Enkwaleni, which is on the Mplatuzi River. So we're like homeboy and homegirl chatting. Another country, voting. So that I felt suddenly that there was like this affinity with another land, another place, that people, Americans around had no idea what the hell we were saying for a start, but also we kind of immediately bonded. She may not like me at all, but because of our histories, and she knew I wasn't lying, um, that it was an immediate moment, like a connection. Right? No, no, no one can break that connection. That's a bond. Even if you're fighting together and you can do that, you know, that, that ties you to the place. That's important. The second one, was in Boston in October of 2000. I started getting really sick because it was the start of winter and it was dark as hell. And I got giant blisters on my body. And so I went to Harvard Medical School. My wife was at Harvard. And I, I said, look, I'm sick. And they said, they tested me for everything, from Ebola to every African disease, you know, because they knew I found out where I was from. And so I had many tests, AIDS, Ebola, you name it, West Nile virus, blah, blah, blah. After a week, they called me back and they said, look, um, you've got a very, very unusual syndrome. It's, it's linked to vitamin D deficiency. Because you grew up in Africa, your body converts vitamin D through the skin, like a black African. So I said, great, I mean, nice to know, give me a pill. And they said, no, no, <laughs> you don't understand. Your body cannot, your body does not get vitamin D from food. Well, like the rest of us here. It gets it from the sun, most of it. You have to go back to Africa and lie in the sun there or get a proper sunbed here. So they said to me, they used to, t they used to always know that, that black Africans had this problem, but only recently did they discover that white Africans had this problem. So, and I thought, if that doesn't prove I'm African, then nothing does. Because they, I said, what happens? To, what am I supposed to do? So I came back to South Africa five times, by the way, that year, to like lie in the sun and get my vitamin D shots. 
or go to Colombia or, you know, Brazil or somewhere, how to get into a warm climate. They said it'll take you about three years to evolve to so your body will get more vitamin D from food and other other places than from through the skin and the sun. So when I came back to South Africa in 2001, I thought no one can ever tell me again that as a pale South African, I don't belong in Africa. My body tells me, you bastard, you took me to the bloody far north and you almost killed me because you're African, you twit. <laughs> so, <laughs> so now I know when I, when I do go into very dark areas or go out of the sun mm. or go and live somewhere, I know what to do. I have to actually physically seek out sunshine and go to sit in it. Well, my body's still like that. And yours will be probably. They said to me, all Africans and all, doesn't matter what color you are, if you're born and raised in a place like this, that even Africans, some Africans spend six months acclimatizing, some whites mm. spend six months, some Africans spend three years, some whites spend three years. We don't know because of the color of your skin how fast it's going to happen. And that was a bit of a, that was a huge wake-up call for me. Those two things tell me that I'm South African. Um, and I'm not romantic. You know, I'll happily live anywhere. Um, I'm not going to say, oh, well, I, you know, I'll die, I'm a rich, so you're blah, blah. No, we are, we are globalized people now. We can make choices. We're lucky. Mm. Um, uh, we can move if we feel like it even at the age of 60 my age you can still say let's go live for three months here if we can get a job or whatever it is so you can see I'm not romantically saying you know I'll fight for my little patch of land no 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 but I do feel intrinsically part of it so and nothing can shake that nothing someone says to me Mm. even if they chase me to the sea and throw me in a boat I still know exactly where I'm from and once you know that it's unshakable. Your, I believe your core spirit of being is just stable. Oh, is what you're saying that our history defines also who we are? Yeah. So I find it easier to say that than other people who were not born. In, I was born in Zimbabwe, for goodness sake, even mm-hmm. further north. I just happened to have grown up at Nkweleni from mm-hmm. age of two. So some people who don't have that experience, who, who I know people who are Scots who, who arrive and then leave, that's different. They have a different place. They go, they seek like, like um, turtles, the place where they were born. Yeah. We do that as humans. We naturally have an affinity like animals to go. We have this, this lurking need to be part of that thing that created us. And you can call it artificial and make jokes about it, but it's true. People just feel that. Majority of us feel like that. People getting very, very old. Suddenly they say, I want to go home and you say you know well you are home and they said no i want to go back to ireland and they've been living here for 60 years these are real things so so yes so the, the same applies to this our history defines us no question about it we, ju- we just forget that we layer it layer it with electricity and social media and mm. you know things there's in front of you there is a crystal ball what mm. do you see well, for all of us, I see, or for me, I see more uh, movement, uh, travel. Um, I see probably a, a quasi-disco band, which I'm forming. <laughs> and um, it, we're going to do Earth, Wind and Fire, all kinds of stuff. Uh, because everyone's going to be in such a bad mood, everyone's going to want to party. So I want to get some of that money from these people wanting to party. So, and so that's the one thing. Um, I see a grandchild, possibly. I also see that um, that there's going to be a big clash with Taiwan and China, and that's going to have a major impact on us, probably by 2027. All the signs are there by around then. I don't see Putin attacking Ukraine. 
Um, he would have done that already. He needs the winter, and the winter's more than halfway through. He needs more of that. Um, I see Ramaphosa losing power, yeah? And I see um, really bad people coming in, and I see a lot of clashes in our future where we have to fight, take over services, run in ourselves, form up communities, all races, doing away with syndicates. So that's going to happen. Um, for, for you, I mean, I, I wish you well. I don't see anything because I don't know you well enough to see anything. Um, but but I, um, it I wasn't person, about me. I knew a person called Crystal, so I was trying to think, what would Crystal do if she had a ball? <laughs> <laughs> um, Des, if people want to follow you, where can they go? Well, Twitter's at Des Latham. Very simple. I mean, send me an email, Desmond Latham with an M, at gmail.com. Um, and that's basically it. I mean, those are the two big things. Then my podcasts are in you know, a history of South Africa. If you, if you search, you'll find them. Just mm-hmm. and I do. I'm a pilot. I fly airplanes. So I'm, I'm plane crash diaries. My, my other big one in, in America. And then um, Anglo, uh, South African border wars. I'm a vet of the border war. I was in Angola. So I'm doing a series. I'm in episode forty odd, forty five on that. And that's also doing quite well. And um, then Stalingrad, which I did mm. podcast on Stalingrad, which which uh, by the way has got a lot of uh, Russian listeners who are hacking me to do another one on Leningrad or maybe the Battle of, of Kursk and a couple of others, and then Anglo Boer War, which is what started off this whole madness. Um, please, if you can listen to that, I know Jeremy, you mentioned it, mm. but um, that's probably my my favorite time I had trying to do this because it was just far enough back not to become too loaded. Mm. And the story itself is amazing because you've got these this tiny little group of of Boers fighting the British Empire, and they almost gave them. I mean, they gave them a major bloody nose. Thank you so much for joining me in the trenches. Thanks for having me in the trenches, and I'd love to come back. My name is Jim. This is Jim Warfare, the Battle of Ideas. If you enjoyed this podcast, please visit supportgerm.com.